What's good, everyone? I'm Langston Clark, founder and organizer of Entrepreneurial Appetite, a series of events dedicated to building community, promoting intellectualism, and supporting Black businesses. In this special Women's History Month episode of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussions, we feature a conversation with Dr. Robin J. Hayes, entrepreneur, filmmaker, and author of Love for Liberation, African Independence, Black Power, and a Diaspora Underground. I want to introduce you all to our speaker for the day, Dr. Robin J. Hayes, author of the book, Love for Liberation, African Independence, Black Power, and a Diaspora Underground. And as we begin, I asked Dr. Hayes just for her to tell us a little bit about her story and who she is, because part of what I want to do with these discussions is introduce Black community to Black scholars that we don't always have access to. And so, Dr. Hayes, if you would just tell your story of how you got to be where you are, a little bit about your, your work as an entrepreneur and a filmmaker and as a scholar. Yes. How did I get to where I am? So I started out in Brooklyn before it was artisanal in a family that was African-American, Latina and and Caribbean. And so that gave me appreciation of black culture and international perspective. And then we moved to Southern California and I lived in the in the valley, which did not have a lot in the way of black culture, international black culture. And from there, I went to boarding school on scholarship, a school called St. George's, where I was a member of the Better Chance program. And I got to be familiar with another interesting culture, which is the 1%. And, you know, I learned that it's definitely true. Kanye has a lyric that says having money isn't everything, not having it is. And I found that to be, you know, definitely the case where there were, you know, universal sort of human concerns and there were the things that definitely, you know, financial abundance can help with that my family did not have access to. And then I went to NYU and I studied uh, for undergrad. And after that, I took a break from school and joined what I call the Radical Circus, an organization called IFCO Pastors for Peace. And their goal was to help create the people's foreign policy in terms of relations between U.S., the Caribbean, and Latin America. And so I traveled all over the U.S., you know, giving giving speeches, collecting humanitarian aid with volunteers, you know, people who were soccer moms, clergy, veterans, people from all different walks of life. And we would deliver this aid by caravan to Chiapas, Mexico and Cuba and El Salvador, Guatemala and Nicaragua. And so I did that for a few years. It was very rewarding and very exciting. I mean, there were times when I was in hilltop villages that supported the Zapatista guerrillas and, you know, would meet leaders of the movement who had AK-47s and ski masks and gold Rolexes. And, you know, this was before smartphones. And my grandparents, you know, who were from the Jim Crow South would say, you know, something could happen to you. You know, you hear stories about these girls and they wind up in foreign jails. I was just like, you're crazy. And I look back, I'm like, they were not. They were not crazy. I was really fortunate and blessed to be doing that work and have remained safe during the years that I was doing it. And it also taught me a great deal about how much can be accomplished with collective action, with social movements, and how long a commitment it requires to really make a difference. And so that work was amazing. But after a few years, I began to feel like I was putting a bandaid on a broken leg. Like we would go and deliver tons of aid and people would be so appreciative and put it to work immediately. And then we would come back in three months and they would be again so grateful because they needed it all still, you know? And so that's when I began to think about maybe I could spend some time working on problem solving, thinking about how to address these problems on a deeper level than humanitarian aid could could do. And so I went to the, the seat of social justice, which is Yale University. That's a joke. However, Yale University, of course, is a prestigious institution, and I received an excellent graduate education there because the school has some of the best faculty in the world and um, and is abundant resources for learning. So I'm very grateful to have been accepted there. I'm very grateful for as much as I joke about it. I'm very grateful for my time there. And I was a joint PhD, the first joint 
PhD to graduate in Black Studies and Political Science. And so I learned a lot about structural inequality. I was able to study with people like Kathy Cohen, who wrote a landmark book, The Boundaries of Blackness. Also, Paul Gilroy, who wrote a landmark book called The Black Atlantic. And, and Jonathan Holloway, who's now the president of Rutgers University. And so I really learned a lot about Black studies, not just in the U.S. context, but internationally as well. And, and intersectional identity, how race intersects with uh, class, gender and sexuality, all of these things. But as I was learning, I just felt like I was learning so much that I felt like my my queer, Black, Latina communities Caribbean communities would want to know. And I knew that they wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable reading a very jargony academic article or a jargony book. And so I started making documentaries. And as I grew from graduate student to professor, I made a couple of documentaries, including Black in Cuba, which is now available to view on Amazon Prime Video and Peacock Plus. And I did a lot of community-based distribution where I would go to Harlem or Detroit or South LA and, and, you know, partner with indigenous institutions, institutions based in the black community, um, like the Schomburg Center for Research of Black Culture in Harlem, for example, and do screenings. And, you know, every time we would do a screening of Black in Cuba, it was a sold out crowd. You know, people had such great questions and comments and people would ask me like, why can't we see more stories like this? We want to see more stories like this. And Black in Cuba actually follows a group of Yale African-American Studies graduate students. I was one of them as we form a Black resistance reading group and then adventure to Cuba to see like how race and revolution are lived on the ground. And so and so making that film and seeing how much more people actually wanted to see encouraged me to focus on narrative and developing television and and feature films. And so the more I demonstrated capacity in my media making, the more my institution, leadership at my institution didn't seem particularly interested or responsive to what I was doing, despite my demonstrated successes. And it got to the point where I was fired after I filed a discrimination complaint. And so I really had to make a choice as to whether I was going to fight to stay in the profession full time or pursue this calling that I had to kind of tell stories for the screen. And so I did, I chose to kind of switch from being a full-time academic and a part-time filmmaker to the other way around. So I moved here to Los Angeles and I started, and I started doing that work of knocking on doors and applying for things and writing scripts. And I was accepted into the blacklist women in film episodic lab. And through that, I was able to get representation. And just last year, actually currently, but I just last year, I started my first professional television writing job on a show called Sander Khan that is forthcoming. That's about a South Asian pirate who battles British colonialism in the 19th century. And so, and so now I'm really just kind of a full-time writer. And in the midst of that, I completed Love for Liberation, which is based on my dissertation that I completed at Yale. And now I'm here talking to you. (laughs) Hope that was succinct. It's been a lot. (laughs) You know, so Dr. Hayes, I want to, I want to point out that you, you are probably the second or third person that I know who left academia as their primary place of work who got their, their doctorate at a prestigious top of the top AAU tier one, above tier one, predominantly white institution mm-hmm. who had been called, who had been called in a way to, to do work in and for black communities. And I, I think in ways that a lot of predominantly white institutions or maybe just academia in general doesn't allow. Mm-hmm. And for the people who are maybe listening to the podcast, maybe here with us tonight, who are wrestling with their mainstream job, it could be corporate America, it could be mm-hmm. wherever. How do you answer the call? Ooh. How do you answer the call? I mean, I have to say, if you had told me five years ago, I had a better chance of breaking into Hollywood and writing for television than I did at getting tenure, I would have found that laughable. You know, I, I had been, I, I was fortunate enough to only be on the tenure track during my entire academic career at prestigious fellowships and publications. I had made two documentaries, you know, and consistently positive teaching evaluations. I thought what I'm doing now was the impossible dream, right? Wow. 
academia was what I was doing to be safe. I'm from a working class family. I'm single. I don't have generational wealth. I don't have spousal wealth. I thought, you know, do well at this and you will have that safe baseline of of income and benefits to take care of yourself. And it turned out that that was the big risk. Wow. You know, which is not to say, you know, I don't miss the the high direct deposit. I mean, for many years, I was lucky to be employed. That money coming every two weeks, every month, you know, like clockwork, it's a relief and it's a joy. And, you know, this work when you have your own business, which basically every artist, you know, if you're living full time as an artist, that is your business. Your 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 art is is how you're earning money. You, You know, that's your product that you're out here slinging. And so you know, it, it doesn't have that same security, that same, doesn't always have that same uh, security or that same sort of reliable interval of income. And so you have to think about your money differently. You think about your time differently. At the same time, you know, I think for me, you know, I, I, I wish I could just say I decided to leave and answer the call. But I really, I think naive in a way, in part because I had started at Yale University with these giants of Black studies and both Paul Gilroy and Kathleen, um, Kathy Cohen are in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I mean, they are the top notch. And so I thought that was everyone's standard for Black mm-hmm. studies. I was trying to do my best to match them. I didn't think I would get all the way there, but I was doing my best to match them and what they had achieved. I didn't understand the extent that, you know, I said, you know, my first production company, Progressive Pupil, is like, oh, we're making Black studies for everybody. Well, this was years before we had Black Lives Matter, you know, as a category of films, you know, on Netflix, right? Like this was years before mainstream corporations used the term Black openly and consistently. The fact that I was even saying the word Black made a lot of my supervisors at different institutions quite uncomfortable. The fact that I thought it was something that everybody could learn about and benefit from. And then I was demonstrating that with my consistently positive teaching reviews and teaching evaluations at historically white institutions was something that made people very uncomfortable and that I wasn't prepared for that. And I was naive about that. Mm -hmm. And so now understanding that, you know, it's hard everywhere. There are obstacles to achieve everything meaningful. So why not work to overcome those obstacles to the thing that is most important to you? Yeah. You know, but that's, you know, it was a journey and sometimes, you know, our higher power, God, whatever you believe in, sometimes our higher power removes what you, from your life, what you don't need, what that you can't remove for yourself. And so for me, it was my attachment to earning tenure and, and, and being full-time in academia that, that, you know, my ancestors, that's my higher power. My ancestors removed that from me so I could focus on this full time. Yeah. And still, you still published the book. Yes. So what was your inspiration in two ways? What was your inspiration for writing the book? Mm-hmm. But then also, what was your inspiration for still finishing the book? Because writing a dissertation is writing the book. But for, <laughs> for people who don't know that, you write a book when you write a dissertation. It's book length, that's for sure. A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Well, the whole other thing to finish the book, right? And I know some people never write the book, turn the dissertation into a book. So what what was that like for you and what was the inspiration there? There was a couple of things. I think first, I just felt like I couldn't help that I did not get tenure and I was off the tenure track, but I could I could control that part. You know, I didn't have to give up what I set out to do in terms of what I wanted to make as a scholar. You know, I I could still be an independent scholar. And so I had the book proposal. I had, you know, the additional research I had done. I felt like, you know, this was something I could take the reins on. And I think it helped me a lot with my grief, you know, in terms of I had been in academia for 17 years full time. You know, it was how I understood. It was a big part of my identity. It was how I understood myself and my relationship to the world. It was how I understood myself as somebody who had climbed her way out of the working class to the middle class. And that was my own internalized stuff that I had to work through when that was gone. Um, And so I felt like, you know, this is something I can do. I'm free to write. I'm free to ask publishers if they will publish me. I'm free to do all that. So it was a part of me reclaiming my autonomy. And then also, you know, I started out with a dissertation because I felt like it, it asked some important questions. How do social movements, Black social movements connect across nation state borders? 
you know, and I felt like with Black Lives Matter, that question was even more important because we saw the way in which, and that's something I talk about in the epilogue of the book, we saw the way in which, you know, Black communities in Europe, um, in South America, all over the world, rose up in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and asked those questions about police misconduct and racial injustice in their own context. And so I thought it was still timely and relevant and important. And when I found a publisher, University of Washington Press, who agreed, I just was like, I'm, I'm going to move forward in this. And it just helped me understand that myself as a creative person is something I get to take with me wherever I go. I don't need a faculty ID anywhere to be a writer, to be a thinker, a scholar, a researcher. And I have to say, you know, uh, when I was full-time in academia, I had been in this privileged position, as you pointed out, I had been to Yale, I had always been employed full time, I had prestigious pre-doc fellowship, postdoc fellowship, tenure track work, I was in the 1%, or at least the 5% of the profession. And from that privileged point of view, I was really encouraged to look down on independent scholars, you know, and so like, oh, you're independent, like you're off in the woods, <laughs> you know, what is that? You know, I was encouraged. And I have to say there were times that I did do that. And and of course, you know, because uh, our ancestors have ways of teaching us the lessons we need to learn. There I was finding myself 100 percent an independent scholar and realizing that I didn't have less to offer because I wasn't approved of by a university or employed by a university. So it just the process of finishing it, despite the fact that I was in this sort of maroon position, really helped me sort of reclaim myself and, and my work for myself outside of the academic employment system. You know, you know what's interesting? So there's this theme of African independence in the book. You're writing the book, experiencing going through your own Black independence process, mm-hmm. just as the countries and Black people here in the United States are, are going through their own independence in the narrative of the story that you're writing. So I just, you know, that, that was like a beautiful parallel to have for you to be having that personal experience as you're finishing up the publishing of the book. Could you just give us an overview of, of the book and some of the, the, the context and content that's in it? I do want to say one thing that I love before you get started mm-hmm. is that the book flip-flops. So it gives an American, so it focuses on, in on what's happening in America, and then it talks about what's happening somewhere in Africa or somewhere else where the diaspora has taken place. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that was a lovely way for you to make sure that as a reader, that was always sort of connected to what was happening here in the United States is connected to what's happening in, in Congo. The way that you wrote it as What's happening in the States, they were talking about what was happening over there on the continent. But what was happening in the Congo, they were talking about what's happening in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I, just, I thought that was beautiful. I'm going to stop rambling. And I'm going to let you talk about. No, it's not rambling. But, and I'm glad to hear that because I did. I wrote it to be accessible and propulsive and interesting, you know, because it is a fascinating time. And so the book is a narrative history of the relationship between the movement for African independence in the mid 20th and later mid 20th century and the black power movement in the United States. So, you know, African independence, specifically in Algeria, Congo, Ghana, Guinea, and Tanzania are the African independence movements I focus on. And then in the US, I focus on the black power organizations, Organization of Afro-American Unity, which is Malcolm X's organization, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is you know, famous for the sit-ins John Lewis was a part of and a leader of, and then the Black Panther Party, which was founded by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale in Oakland, California in 1966. And so to me, understanding how these organizations related and what came out of that relationship was really important to understanding the value of sort of transnational connections between Black folks in particular. So a lot of times when there's discussion about U.S. and Africa, it's either like a government to government conversation, political leader, political leader, or it focuses more on sort of cultural elites. And so there are some fantastic books and some fantastic historical work that does explore that, but not from the position of like social movements exclusively. And so something 
So, yeah, so starting with Ghana's independence in 19, March of 1957, the celebration of that independence, which was attended by Martin Luther and Coretta Scott King, and how that relationship on both sides of the Atlantic grows as both African independence and Black power become more and more frustrated with their inability to achieve their goals. And something that struck me, I did a lot of interviews with people um, who were involved in these organizations. And something that struck me is so many of them told me, you know, they really believe the revolution is going to happen tomorrow. They were committed to the extent that they were committed and willing to endure imprisonment, beatings, assassinations attempt in the case of Fred Hampton, actual assassination. They were willing to endure all that because they, they really believed what they were doing was making an impact and would change everything immediately. And as they became frustrated in their striving for racial justice and self-determination, they began to seek each other out and turn their backs on dominant institutions. So they felt really began to understand that empowerment and connection between Black people was the way that both Africans and African-Americans could be truly free. Unfortunately, as they were coming to these realizations and forging these connections, the counterinsurgency that they endured from forces like the CIA. And again, it's like, you know, so much of what we hear from, you know, brothers shouting on the corner sounds like conspiracy theory. Like there is truth underneath it, right? The CIA really was involved in the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. You know, the FBI really did make targeted attempts to divide and undermine the Black Panther Party leadership and was involved in targeting them for police attacks. And so that pressure really uh, dismantled a lot of these organizations. On the African independence side, there were coups, there were there was a withdrawal from active social movement activism and a consolidation of sort of state political power. On the American side, a lot of leaders were murdered or imprisoned or exiled. And so, but the good news is the values of transnational connection, of independence, of racial justice as a human rights issue, that this relationship and these organizations separately promoted, those values seeped into our communities. And so, you know, it's so funny to me, I talk about this in the book, I had a colleague who studied East African history, who was white. And he was like, you know, I've always been so confused as to why African-Americans like get into speaking Swahili. Like, why is why is Kwanzaa all about Swahili? And like everyone's wear dashiki. That's like from Tanzania. Like that's all the way on the East side. That's not like y'all. I was like, oh, you mean we're not Tanzania? And he's like, yeah, kind of like what's going on. And it was in through doing this research. I realized, well, so many of us had been invited to Tanzania because of Julius Nyeri and his interest in connecting with African-Americans that had been inspired in part by Malcolm X and his time there. That that's how we became to be like, yes, we love Africa as in we love Tanzania. And so these things are still inspiring how we engage transnationally and the values that we have in terms of what we believe racial justice needs to look like, what we believe Black liberation looks like. So all was not lost because we didn't get all the way there. And to me, that's a really important lesson because we kind of, especially now in the social media age, we, you know, we're looking for the highlight reel. We're looking for the Instagrammable result. You know, and and I think a lot of times that leads us to confuse achievement with a success. Right. You know, and achievements are great, but achievements tend to be a lot easier to gain than success in long term goals and intentions. And um, understanding that, you know, you don't have to get all the way there to put things to, to build positive momentum, to steer things in a direction, you know, so that they can go on after you're gone, I think is something that we can definitely learn from the examples of African independence and Black power activists. It is true that Black history, as taught in schools in the United States, is very limited and doesn't show a full picture of Black history. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least, it doesn't invite Americans, Black Americans, to explore a full history of Black history. Because you can't you can't get all history in K through 12. Right. But it, it can be delivered in a way that would invite you to want to know more and seek out more. But it doesn't do that. And my own personal upbringing, I think I've had above and beyond what the schools could give me because of my parents. We, 
Mm-hmm. We had books in the house, black books, all types of stuff. My mother was raised in a segregated South. My dad was raised in a quasi-integrated North in Buffalo, but they were alive when stuff was going down. Like my mom was in college in 1968. Like she was a freshman in college in 1968. And my dad was 28 years old. Mm. So they lived through these things. Yet and still, your book provided me some insights to the limitations, I think, of the stories about Black history that Black folk in the United States who know the history maybe don't even consider or or sometimes we put our own limitations on it. So I wasn't as aware that Malcolm X belonged to the world as I was before I read this book. I knew Stokely Carmichael left, but I didn't know that even before he left the relationships he was building, right? I didn't know that the Black Panthers, some of them, the relationships they had with Black folk around the world. Mm -hmm. Malcolm X was in the UN. These people were petitioning the UN Mm -hmm. for Black people. And so I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it is like for Black people in the United States historically, and maybe connecting that history that you write about in a book to what people could do now in terms of expanding their identity as global citizens. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you bring up the UN example because Malcolm X petitioning, advocating for petitioning the UN is what inspired Black Lives Matter leaders decades later to, to actually go and do the same thing and say, you know, this is a human rights, right? The, the persistent anti-Black violence in the United States is a human rights issue. And there should be international recognition of this international intervention. That was directly inspired by Malcolm X. And so I think, you know, um, one person that I interviewed, Barbara Easley Cox, who was a leader of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, and she and her husband, Don, were part of the international chapter of the Black Panther Party in Algeria. She told me, you know, what was so meaningful to her to be in Algeria and to meet with other African independence leaders, specifically women participating in other African independence organizations, was to understand that that they weren't alone. They weren't the only little group of black people in her words, little group of black people. They weren't the that they weren't the only ones fighting for difference. And so they felt more empowered because they knew there were so many people on their side and who were also weakening the system through their own struggles. Hey everyone, thank you again for your support of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussion. Beginning this season, we are inviting our listeners to support the show through our Patreon website. The founding 55 patrons will get live access to our monthly discussions for only $5 a month. Your support will help us hire an intern or freelancer to help with the production of the show. Of course, you can also support us by giving us five stars, leaving a positive comment, or sharing the show with a few friends. Thank you for your continued support. So it's easier, you know, I think, to have the perseverance necessary to create social change when you understand that you're part of momentum, you're part of a wave. Um, And so that is something that I think is important about teaching international dimensions of Black history in schools in the United States or anywhere is us understanding that, you know, we are recognized around the world for how much we have struggled for equality. It is an international issue. And there are opportunities for allyship, not just within our own boundaries, but all around the world. I think that just helps us understand how much possibility there really is for racial justice. One of the one of the tensions that ex- I think exists today in Black communities in the United States is ADOS. If you're an American descendant of slaves or foundational Black Americans, and then you have Black folk who came from the Caribbean, Black folk who came from directly from the continent. And there's these there's these cultural arguments over who should get reparations, or mm-hmm. who should get the benefits of initiatives to access to resources, schools, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see that in the book. When I read the book, I didn't I didn't see all of these tensions about, yo, you from Africa, you know, so you coming up, you stepping on my toes, you're taking our resources from America. It was to me, the people found common interests across the diaspora yes. to, to push forward a struggle among black people that is global. Yes. You no, know? and I, I'm and I'm wondering how do we, as a historian, as a political scientist, how do you see those connections to what was happening in the past to today, maybe the tensions that are Yo, did the CIA cause that? You know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, is foundational Black Americans and ADOS really like 
a CIA cell. That's well, I, I, I'm going to be very, very clear, listeners and attendees. Langston said it. I didn't say it. <laughs> I could neither confirm nor deny if that is true. However, it what struck me as you were talking about that is, you know, a couple of things. One, you know, James Baldwin, I quote him in my book, he talked about, you know, the, the feeling was among African-American activists because the civil rights activism was happening as African independence was having this resurgence. And the feeling was, according to James Baldwin, here they are getting their own countries and we can't even get a hamburger or a Coke, right? We're fighting to be at a lunch counter and they're president. This was way before Barack Obama. And so it wasn't a sense of like, you shouldn't have what I have. It was like, how can we level up to what you're doing? And the flip side of that was, you know, African folks who came to the United States, like African diplomats, you know, they're newly independent, they're coming and they're in the UN, they're, you know, in their embassies in DC and they're experiencing racism in a way they never had because they're from majority black countries. They live in majority black environments. Their attitude wasn't like, oh, I'm different than African-Americans. So don't bring that over here. It was like, you need to stop that period. That is unacceptable for any black person, whether I'm an African diplomat or, you know, there's a, a someone who's a janitor, like that's just a no. So there was a sense of uh, Michael Dawson, a very well-known political scientist talks about linked fate. There's a sense of linked fate between Africans and African-Americans during this time, not a sense of competition, but it was also because I think, and I say this with love and solidarity, on both sides, there was there were much bigger goals. The goal was not to get something from, from dominant institutions or from white people. It was to forge something for yourself. Ghana's attitude was like, we didn't just goodbye, Britain. Like, we don't need you. We've got it from here. Algeria, thanks for our oil back. Bye. We've got it from here. We can do this. We can take care of ourselves and each other. I think once the focus becomes on self-determination, on independence, we can see how much we can help ourselves. We can see how rich and glorious our history and our culture is. And then we think about how can we work together to develop that for ourselves? It's not about going backwards. And I'm not against reparations by any measure, but it's not a focus on how we can get a debt paid. It's about how can we just have what is ours and then have the decision-making power to decide what we want to do with it. And that's that's a big difference, I think. And when you're thinking on that level, I think, yeah, it's easier to think about collaboration and cooperation than it is to be divisive. Now, having said all that, I think it is important to identify that many of the people that we point to as like, oh, look, they've broken racial barriers. There are certain barriers they have not had to contend with. Mm. So I think it absolutely, I was joking with my friend because she was calling me because my friends who are not black studies professors like to call me with black studies complaints. <laughs> like, I'm, like I'm in charge of fixing them or something. But my, you know, when Kamala Harris was, you know, nominated, you know, my friend called me because she's like, people are complaining on Twitter and saying she's not black. And that's ridiculous. I don't need to tell you that she was an AKA because she, she is. And that's why she was mad. <laughs> In defense of Kamala, <laughs> which is like she and I was like, oh, absolutely. You're right. She is black. Yeah. She is Afro-Caribbean, Jamaican and Indian. She's a biracial black woman. There is no question about that. And she is not a descendant of Africans who were enslaved and brought to the United States. Neither was Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. So while the racial barrier to the highest offices, political offices in the land may be weakening, there is still an ethnic barrier for African-Americans. Mm. And it's important to name that. It's hard to do that on Twitter in 180 characters to say all that. Mm. But it's important for us to call that out. It's important for us to call out, you know, when we look at some of our, you know, the, our most visible, successful African-Americans or Black people, many of them are biracial. Many of them are lighter skinned. Many of them are some of them are not African-American. And so there may be barriers associated with deeper skin, with an African-American ethnicity, which ethnicity is different from race, right? With having, you know, a, 
a distance from whiteness biologically, right? Or in terms of your kinship ties, that is affecting success in the workplace. That's a fair thing to talk about. Mm. Also a fair thing to talk about is the distrust of African-Americans that black immigrants learn almost as soon as they get here. Mm. Now, sometimes we as African-Americans, you know, we get our backs up. Like if somebody says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not African-American. I'm Trinidadian. He's like, oh, you think you're better than us? Yeah. They didn't say that, did they? Yeah. They were just saying, <laughs> they were just. Yeah. <laughs> right? Sometimes we get our backs up when people tell the truth about their distinct national heritage. And that's not fair mm-hmm. either. So there's some learning and communication that we need to have to heal. And a lot of the hurt is coming from the racial animosity we're all coping with. All right. And, you know, part of the reason that our friends from Trinidad and Jamaica and Ghana, you know, and and Nigeria, you know, are so adamant about holding on to the national identity is they had to fight for it. Mm. It was something taken from them. They had to reclaim through independent struggle. And so it's like, you know, when our, our you know, Puerto Rican siblings talk about, listen, you know, it's time. It's Puerto Rican Day Parade. We're going to wave this flag. It means something when they've struggled for autonomy for so long. And so. I think the more information we have, to your point, the more education we have about this, it's easier for us to understand our differing viewpoints. And we don't have to disqualify each other from membership or from community. We can start having those conversations that Black Power and African Independence had about how can we work together? What's the common ground that can get us all what we really need? Dr. Hayes, that was a teachable moment. (laughs) I'm serious. That was a teachable moment because I had never... But I, I don't have angst about like Puerto Rican Day Parade. I like I grew up in New Jersey, so like we would go to Puerto Rican Day Parade anytime they would have it. Like it was the end of the school year, we'd be up there. I wasn't supposed to be up there. I was a teenager, but I was there. But you can't miss it. No, why would you miss it? You can't miss it. So, and I, but I, I never, I never attributed a Puerto Rican Day Parade. We have uh, various ethnic groups here in San Antonio where I live, and. Belizean, like there's a there's a Belizean community here and they, they celebrate the Independence Day for Belize. And I, I never made the connection about people saying like, I'm not African, I'm Trinidadian, I'm Nigerian American, that that is related to their, their own freedom struggle that they had to gain independence in their own country. I have never made that connection. I've never had that explained mm-hmm. in that way. And, I, and it, it makes me think about, so... There's like a, a framework, this model of a diaspora underground. And I'm wondering if you could explain some of the parts of that, because what you just did explaining the, the, the identities that people who aren't African-American by way of slavery in the United States, the, the, the identities that they have, it's almost been like, what does a new diaspora, an underground of the diaspora look like given the modern context? But first, if you could talk about what you presented in, in the book. Yeah. So a diaspora underground is, I call it a transnational space time, right? So, you know, we understand the diaspora to be, the African diaspora to be, um, you know, countries and regions um, of, you know, where people of African descent, you know, live, which is now because we've had waves of migration since the transatlantic slave trade is, is a lot of places around the world. And so it's a space, a geographic space. It's also in terms of territory, but it's also a configuration of spaces that are indigenous institutions. So whether it's BET or Ebony Magazine or Blavity um, or The Root or Grio or Abyssinian Baptist Church or this podcast, right? Like Wherever we have institutions that are sort of for us, by us, those spaces are also part of the diaspora underground because they're spaces where we can go and be free from the white supremacist gaze and have discussions among ourselves about Black freedom. Mm. And so it's also, it's a space-time, which is hyphenated. And this is a concept from physics, which is like, yes, there's three-dimensional space. And then there's also our understanding of the past, present, and future. And so when we get together in spaces in the diaspora underground, we are developing a Black-centered view of history Mm -hmm. that incorporates, you know, conversations about Black history, culture, and politics that are not often found in mainstream institutions. We also discuss the present and the realities of the present. 
that can be distorted and obscured by mainstream institutions. And perhaps most importantly, we also can discuss and envision a liberated Black future. And so that is broadly what a diaspora underground is. And in that space time, during periods of Black rebellion, activists and their constituencies connect and have these interpersonal exchanges of ideas, of cultural forms, and sometimes develop very intimate personal relationships as well as political ones. One of the things that I, I appreciate about the book as you explain the underground, as you explain Black people's transnational presence, mm-hmm. this wasn't a book about the civil rights that we get in school. I don't think I heard, I don't remember reading anything about Black people saying, be nonviolent. It, 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 I, there were transitions. I, I mean, it was there because SNCC, SNCC was nonviolent, right? It didn't work, but there was a shift that happened. And so I was intrigued by Robert Williams because my, my parents live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Like I got a, I went to North Carolina a and I got a homeboy from Monroe, North Carolina. Like yeah. I got a homie from there. Like, and when you think about NAACP, you don't think about Negroes with guns. Yeah. And they didn't think about that either, which was part of the, I mean, I find it to be as a black history buff, you know, comical, right? Because Robert F. Williams was the leader of the Monroe, North Carolina chapter of NAACP in the 50s and 60s. And, and, you know, South America has this tradition of armed self-defense. And and there was a tradition throughout the Black South of armed self-defense. And so, you know, there were people who, you know, if the Klan came riding by, they would sit on the porch with their shotgun, you know, and that was a part of the culture. And so uh, Robert F. Williams, his chapter, they had... You know, it was a particularly violently racist environment in Monroe. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of veterans in that Monroe, North Carolina chapter, and they decided to arm themselves for self-defense. And so I think part of what we learn uh, about civil rights in a lot of schools is that there's this hard dichotomy between violence and nonviolence. Martin Luther King was a pacifist. He believed that violence was unacceptable in all forms regardless of whether you were defending yourself or not. And that was a spiritual choice, just as Gandhi made the spiritual choice to say, you know, whatever you may do to me is not going to be worse than what happens to my spirit if I devolve to the level of using violence. It's a spiritual belief, right? A philosophy. So Robert F. Williams was not necessarily violent. He wasn't about let's go attack the Klan. It was If the Klan comes riding by here, I will be on the porch with the shotgun. I will defend myself. I will defend people in my community. And he talks about, um, and I actually have a clip of this interview in my documentary, Black in Cuba. He talks about how, you know, it's it's a willingness to defend oneself with violence is necessary when local authorities are corrupt. And so in the case of Monroe, North Carolina, the police would never investigate violence against Black people. They were suspected of being part of violence against Black people on the low. And so and so he was very outspoken about his belief in armed self-defense. This was completely against what the national NAACP thought was acceptable. They were horrified at these press photos coming out of like Robert F. Williams and the Monroe chapter members with all their shotguns being like, what's up? You know, it was like, no, we need you to stop. And so he came out with a book, a manifesto called Negroes with Guns. There's also a great documentary about him that was on PBS called Negroes with Guns. And and that manifesto was a huge inspiration to the Black Panther Party, to Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, that Robert F. Williams and his commitment to self-defense, as well as Malcolm X, who talked about the the value of self-defense. And so these folks are sometimes, you know, described as violent Mm. when, in fact, they were not. I mean, there's, you know, Malcolm X, there's that one picture of him in the shotgun again hoping to defend his family against further attacks after his home was firebombed, right? He is not looking to attack anybody in particular. He's looking to defend himself, similarly with Robert F. Williams. So the value of self-defense is something that's definitely, you know, popularized by Robert F. Williams in the mid-20th century as a civil rights movement activist. And there also was a group called the Deacons of Defense, who were the security for civil rights workers in the South. And so folks who were committed to nonviolence would ride with the armed deacons of defense. (laughs) (laughs) 
that it's important for us not to be skittish or ashamed of black people wanting to live. Why, why shouldn't we want to protect? If we believe black lives matter, why wouldn't we protect black life? That was certainly their perspective. So, yeah, so that is something that we don't talk a lot about even how nonviolence was a political strategy either, right? It can be kind of taught to us as an example of like the best kind of black people are docile, but the folks who were super committed to nonviolence in the case of Gandhi, in the case of Martin Luther King, in the case of the sit-in activists who started off at North Carolina AD, right? Was it February 1st, 1960, right? At the Woolworths, which if you have a chance to go to that museum in Greensboro, that is a very affirming Black experience, I can say. Um, But those folks who were committed to nonviolence, you know, they knew they were being disruptive. Mm. They knew how it looked to the world that they were sitting in their Sunday best. And there was a dress code for those, those protests. They knew that they were sitting there in their Sunday best, reading their books, Mm. minding their business. And it was white supremacists who looked like savages. It was white supremacists who looked like predators. And that was a complete counter to the racist narrative about black behavior that had been dominant in this country. So it was not docile at all. It was actually very aggressive. Mm. You know, it says for whites only, you know, you're not white. And yet you sat here. That's right. You know, you're going to provoke people. You know, there's going to be a confrontation and you don't care. That's on you and your racism. It's petty. Right. But also completely justified, completely justified. And so I think it's important that we make sure to reframe those decisions and those campaigns as the active, assertive acts that they were and justified justified in that active assertion a hundred percent i i feel like that's the title of a book justified pettiness justified pettiness yes absolutely like you're just gonna sit right here no matter how much we spit on you throw coffee on you scream epithets at you you're just gonna sit here and take it and we look foolish and it's like yes i am listen i'm gonna make that a meme i'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna take a picture of like Black folk from A and T sitting in justified pettiness. Justified pettiness, you know, going limp. You know, it's like the whole idea of you're in a demonstration. This is another civil rights technique. You're in a civil rights demonstration. If they come to take you away, turn yourself into dead weight to make their arrests slower and more yeah. difficult. Like, yes, of course, when you see the picture, oh my goodness, these people are just splayed out and these police officers are carrying them. They, ju- you just turned yourself into like a 200 pound piece of 150 pound piece of, right? Like it's petty. And that's what you get for segregation. Too bad, you know. I don't want it that way. I never thought about it that way. All right. So we're we're gonna we got like 10 people in the chat. So I want to give them an opportunity to ask a question. So those of you who may have a question or so, you can type it in the chat. Both Dr. Hayes and I can see it. Um, and I'm gonna give y'all time to write it in there. So I'm gonna ask a question first, which I think will give them time to write. And this is an important question because throughout the book, there you, you talk about black women, but as we get closer to the end of the book, there's a much more focused attention on Black women and Black queer folk who were were part of the underground, but maybe, not maybe, but didn't have the same opportunities for leadership and recognition and all of that. So um, can you can you talk a little bit about the roles that people at the intersections of Blackness maybe didn't have in participating and, and in the ways that they still struggled and did participate in the Black diaspora underground? So... You know, something that was very distinct about the Black Panther Party from the beginning is that it welcomed women's participation, right? So, and they're always, you know, in Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a little bit less so in the Organization for African-American Unity, but definitely in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Black Panther Party, their women were key to the successes of those organizations, but they were often relegated to, you know, what was considered to be women's work, right? Whether it's, you know, taking notes or, you know, we all know what, what that, that still means the same thing today, unfortunately, right? And so there was participation, but there was a glass ceiling. 
and there was patronizing and there was sexual harassment as described by Panther women. Um, and so I thought it was important to recognize the ways in which women in those organizations were talking about it at the time. Mm. Right. So in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, aka SNCC, there was a memo about women's about you know the struggles that women were having and about how they were engendered roles and how there was a sort of policing of their sexuality and there was the sense that they could not be leaders or spokespeople to the extent that men could be. And some of those volunteers went on to be in the second wave feminist movement. Um, similarly, in the Panthers, there was a conversation about on one hand, yes, we have women participation. We foreground the participation of women. We have Kathleen Neal Cleaver. We have Elaine Brown. We have these powerful leaders and spokespeople. But behind closed doors, there were microaggressions. There was a sense that like, well, you know, you're a woman, so you're here to be cute and my date, not necessarily. That's what you can do for the revolution, mm -hmm. right? And so it was complicated and it was contested. It, and I think sometimes there can be this um, sense by people who feel uncomfortable with gender, with gender equality and conversations about gender equality now that that was something, this is new, mm -hmm. right? It's just these girls nowadays care about it, right? When in fact, no, women have always been concerned about it and not necessarily heard fully or responded to fully. Hmm. And so similarly, something that was fascinating to me as a queer person is, you know, Huey P. Newton wrote in 1971 about how his own homophobia was really motivated by his insecurities as a man. And, you know, straight brothers basically needed to be honest about that and stop projecting their insecurities onto gay men. Hmm. I was like, it's 1971. It's three years after Stonewall. Hmm. And he's basically like the Black Panther Party is not a homophobic organization. and We all need to stop. You know, so a concern about gay rights in black liberation struggle is not new, mm. is not is not something for today for the kids. This has been a longstanding conversation. And we here we have somebody who I think it's fair to say is an icon of black masculinity being very clear that it has no place in a concern about black liberation. It's interesting because when I think about Huey, everybody thinks about Huey on the, in the chair with the yes. In the sphere. In the sphere. You know I mean? Like that's 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 black masculinity right there. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, it was it was interesting for you for, for that I remember where I think it's at the top of one of the pages. Right? <laughs> I, no, I, that that's not I read it today actually. Yeah. And it was like, hmm, interesting because that that's not that's not a narrative that we typically hear coming from Black Panthers or that's not certainly not the way that I viewed. Huey Newton, you know what I mean? So it, it was, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not something that it, it, we don't understand his entire journey in terms of his thinking about what black liberation can mean. And I also think, you know, we don't talk enough about the ways in which queer positivity lets men out of the prison of toxic masculinity. Mm. And it it's something that I began to think about you know, learning about Huey and his feelings about this, but also seeing an interview with Pharrell of all people, the rapper and producer, mm -hmm. and, you know, talking about how, you know, men have been freed in fashion because they no longer have to fear being called gay, right? That that was like a terror under which men lived out. And I was like, yeah, especially in hip hop, 80s, 90s, yeah. even the 2000s, right? Like if someone were to say you were gay, that was like a form of character assassination. Yeah. So, of course, that's super homophobic, but also that puts even straight men in a prison, right? I can't do this. I can't do that. I have to police myself, how I express my feelings, how I express my art to fit into this aggressive, dominating, hateful of women mm. performance. Yeah. But if everybody can be what they want to be, then who cares? Right. You get to be what you want to be, too. What does... So I... We, how, you know this as a as a someone who was in black studies. There's like internal arguments that we have about is it black first and then everything else? Is it the intersections? You know what I mean? Because I almost think about that almost like the 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 cultural tensions we have between black folk who are American descendants of slaves. Mm -hmm. Like that's a whole other strand of tensions that we got to deal with to kind of get back to what's the goal that they were that they sought out back in the 1960s and 70s civil rights movement, black power struggle. Mm -hmm. So moving forward, how do you see us dealing with that 
to address, you know, we all had the same common goal for our, our liberation and our progression as Black folk. Well, and I think, I mean, for me, I have a very intersectional identity. And to me, it's like you cannot disaggregate parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't walk into the room Black first or woman first or queer. I, it, it's all coming at the same time. And and I also think, you know, it's helpful to let that conversation go again, when you have a different understanding of what the goals are and what the problem is. So a part of, I find in my personal experience, the people who are most attached to Black women's subjection, for example, really think that the relations between white men and white women are ideal. Mm -hmm. That, you know, oh, if only I too could be living in the suburbs, you know, with a job and a woman at home, you know, who takes care of the domestic sphere and so on and so forth, right? That that's the best life. And it may not be. And so if you understand that sexism is a transracial problem, that all of America has a rape culture, as we've learned from Tarana Burke, all of America has a rape culture, and it's not just the United States, then that model is perhaps not ideal in terms of how genders should relate, regardless of race. So what is something new to strive for? Maybe it is a freedom where people's gender identity and expression is not policed. Maybe what makes a man is what makes a good person, and it's not different. Maybe what makes a woman is not her ability to be approved of or controlled or possessed by men. And so I think if we understand our goals to be about liberation and self-determination, then it's easier to let go of this conversation that identities need to compete. Mm. Because in a structure where people are empowered to make, you know, the decisions, to make decisions about the resources they have access to, how those resources are used, that's, that's freedom. Mm. That's an environment where people can make decisions repeatedly that affect themselves and their loved ones. And that's what we don't have now. So I I think about you bringing that up, right? People's freedom to express who they are makes me think about part of the book where you wrote how Malcolm X was traveling abroad. He had left the nation of Islam and he wasn't dressing in this. He wasn't dressing in a suit, the press suit anymore. He, his whole, maybe his whole way of being, maybe not his whole way of being, but a large part of his way of being changed by traveling abroad and seeing Muslim folk, seeing Black folk around the world. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about maybe in your own experience and the experiences of the people that you wrote about in the book, the importance of Black folk in the United States traveling and spending time elsewhere? I mean, I have been fortunate enough to travel to over 30 countries and I'm excited for COVID to die back down. So I feel safer getting back out there. Um, And I think a couple of things, especially for folks who are also scholars, Mm -hmm. because it is one thing to read about things. It's another thing to see that they are real Mm. for yourself. So, you know, even, you know, there's traveling internationally. I, one of the most profound experiences I ever had in life was being in Berlin and seeing the bust of Nefertiti. So this is a bust that Nefertiti of Egypt sat for herself. Mm. And she has cat's eye eyeliner and lipstick. It's like 10,000 BC. Right. And I was like, first of all, obviously, Diana Ross has seen this because this is her eye makeup. So before Amy Winehouse, like this is like this is huge. And also, like, don't let anybody tell you you're not beautiful. Mm. We basically invented Sephora, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right. And again, I had seen the image. I had seen the image, but seeing it in person. Mm was a transformative experience. Like Nefertiti was real. She was. She was real. And it just, you know, and so I think that there's just something to bearing witness, Mm. like going to South Africa and going to Nelson Mandela's house, 
where that he shared with Winnie Mandela before he was incarcerated, which is now a museum. And you see this house is like a solid 600 square feet, like so small, a little yard. And not just seeing the house itself in Soweto and being in that township that was the capital of the anti-apartheid revolution, the independence revolution in that country, and walking the streets and being like, this is real. I saw it growing up. I heard about it. This is a real place with real people, so few means, and look what they did, but also to witness other people going to see it as well, right? And like what it means to other African people. Like when I was there, a busload of, of African folks, I didn't get a chance to ask where they were from. When I when I tell you they act like they had just won Powerball to be at Nelson Mandela's house, they were like, are you kidding me? It was, they were overwhelmed with joy and pride. And to sit, so to see his house and to witness it, it just gave me a whole other perspective on the impact of what he had done. Mm. So yeah, it's so important to bear witness to our history in the U.S. and also internationally because it deepens our understanding and it just helps us understand the truth of it in a way that, you know, just reading about it and seeing the pictures online just doesn't do. Thank you for joining this special Women's History Month edition of Entrepreneurial Appetites Black Book Discussions. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show, give us five stars, leave a comment, or join the Entrepreneurial Appetite Patreon for access to our live discussions. In our next episode, join us for a conversation between Drs. Diane Stewart, author of Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage, and Dr. Ladria Ingram, founder of the Ladream Institute and the Social Justice Olympic Summit.